here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Have you started thinking about your summer goals? Are you hoping for some accountability to help you stay motivated through the summer heat? Join Author Accelerator and the hashtag AmWritingPodcast for a free weekly writing challenge. The 2022 Summer Blueprint Butt in the Chair Challenge will include 10 episodes hosted by certified book coaches, Jenny Nash and KJ Delantonia. 
In each episode, Jenny and KJ will give you an actionable step to take to further along your manuscript or revision. You can also sign up for weekly reminder emails to help you stay on track. Each episode will include interviews with other experts across the publishing industry about their writing journeys, all to keep you inspired, motivated, and ready to write all summer long. Learn more and sign up for the challenge by visiting authoraccelerator.com slash writing. That's authoraccelerator.com slash writing. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to let you know about a fundraiser that we're doing that, besides raising funds for a really excellent cause, will give you an opportunity to win one of three awesome prizes. Now, my first novel, Hum If You Don't Know the Words, was translated into Ukrainian, and I recently had a Ukrainian reader reach out to say that reading my book had offered her solace and distraction during a really difficult time in her life living in a war zone in the Ukraine. Now, after chatting with her, we decided to do some fundraising for various nonprofits who are doing such amazing work there. So here's the deal. For every $20 you donate, you get one ticket into a draw to win one of three awesome prizes sponsored by Carly, Cece, and myself. If you win one of those prizes, you'll get to decide if you'd like a 45-minute brainstorming session with us or if you'd prefer to that we give you a detailed 40-page critique of your work in progress. So you get to pick the prize depending on what you need the most. The more you donate, the more tickets you get. Head over to theshitaboutwriting.com for more details and to find the link to the GoFundMe. Support an amazing cause and stand a chance to win an awesome prize. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. As per usual, we are going to dive right in. Carly, will you read us the first query letter? Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I recently took your advice and started submitting short stories and flash fiction to small presses, which has helped me build a fledgling resume and discipline my writing at a line level. For that and many other reasons, thank you. More help, please. Complete at 80,000 words, Isaac Rising is a character-driven, dual POV, erotic, queer, vampire romance. I believe in the story as I've written it, which is not for the sole purpose of delivering, albeit hot, frequent, sex scenes, but I'm worried this will limit its market potential to the world of erotica, where story and character development are lower priorities. I struggle to even find comps for this project. Your feedback on my query letter and pages, especially your insight into finding a home and the widest possible audience for my book, would be so appreciated. Justice for erotica novels. Isaac Ritchie's life is teetering on the edge after he loses his job over an after-hours fling in the office conference room. While screwing a janitor named Shane is not a classic harbinger of primeval prophecy, the event triggers Isaac's surrender to a dark force within and summons an ancient vampire who is destined to be his maker and eternal love, knowing only that he will become the most powerful vampire of all, foretold to deliver the world from a great evil. Isaac must learn to master his newfound abilities in time to fulfill the mysterious prophecy. Shane is a formidable wizard with the plan to exploit Isaac's raw power for his own sinister purposes, proving some janitors do so much more than buff and wax. If he succeeds, Shane will conquer Isaac, dominate humanity, and fall in love with a psychic ginger nymph named Kyle along the way. I recently left a 20-year career in the public sector to pursue a life as an author, screenwriter, and storyteller on the advice of my cat Matilda, who is the light of my days. Thank you for your time and valuable support of the writing community, Michael Bonacore. Wonderful, Carly. All right. So what was your take on that query letter? 
All right. And as a comment in the more help, please, I said, that's what we're here for. We're here for help. So we're, we're always glad that you're, you're sending these in. So we are at the service of yourself, but obviously all the fellow listeners. So thank you. This is a very interesting mix of genres, topics, categories. I think that you, you summarized it really well. I know you're having some concerns about, you know, comps and category, but I feel like I really understand what a character driven dual POV erotic queer vampire romance is. Like, I don't know. I feel like I get it. I think, I think you actually convey this quite well. In terms of comps, so some things you want to think about are potentially authors or author brands that you want to emulate. So even if you can't find a comp for the specific book, find comp brands or comp authors. Another thing I was thinking is, you know, you could call it, I mean, I'm just trying, I don't know all of my sexy vampire genre (laughs) novels and movies and films and podcasts, but if I did, that's where I would put them, you know, sexy vampire blank mixed with blank or urban fantasy erotica, you know, maybe some, there's some comps in that space. So do your best, but I would probably be comping a bit of multimedia, whether it's, you know, for fans of True Blood, something like that, for fans of True Blood meets blank. So I I think you can get a little multimedia with this in terms of comps. And also if there is an erotica brand name author that whose career you really like, you know, maybe just say something to the effect of you, you're, you're aiming for a career like that. So those would be my feedbacks on the comp. But overall, as I said, I feel like I feel like you pitched this pretty, pretty clearly for something that could potentially go in a, you know, in a wild direction. I just feel like I feel like you really you nailed it. I think it is very, very clear. Cece, what did you think? I want to say first and foremost, Michael, that I feel you because I've learned there is so much resistance in this industry when it comes to sex. Like, I don't know why it's boring. It's a boring resistance and I'm so over it. So I love your mission here. In terms of the plot paragraph, I'm not sure what the mysterious prophecy is. And I feel like I want a little bit more specificity. It's just not coming together. There's like the scene where the protagonist is having sex with Shane. And then there's also you know, his destiny as the chosen one. And then there's also Shane's secret identity. And I'm not like, I'm not sure how it's coming together. I'm not sure how it's culminating in X and I want it to culminate in something. So I would tweak that to, to make that a little bit more clear. And I love the cat Matilda who doles out advice and that is the sweetest thing. So yeah. Wonderful. Okay, Carly, will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? Absolutely. So we start with our our main character here, Isaac. He's sitting at his desk. He is drinking a glass full of amber liquid of some sort. We're assuming it's alcohol. And he is waiting for a Zoom call in which he thinks he's going to get fired, in which he is fired. And we find out it's because he had this tryst with the janitor. And that's kind of why he's getting fired. He tries to stand his ground a little bit, negotiate for more kind of a better severance package and she kind of just says no the boss and then we get a flashback to the night before where we start to see the the setup of Isaac and Shane's sexual escapades at work basically and then it stops before uh, there's any sort of climax (laughs) pardon the pun right okay Cece what was your take on those opening pages I'm thinking about Huck and how he talked about how he was approaching climax the town and he would say that to someone on the phone Anyway, I'm just thinking about that. So (laughs) I really like these pages. I would flesh out the interiority in the first scene. So he just got fired, right? And he's expecting to be fired right from the beginning. And that expectation, given that it actually happens with really no surprise, means that we're not surprised either. And you want your reader to have that element of surprise. There's also very little inner life 
which would shed light on his character. So, for example, he's negotiating a, a year's salary versus, you know, I don't know if it was three months or something, you know, fewer, fewer months' salary. Does he need the money desperately? How comfortable is his financial situation? And I'm not suggesting like a paragraph on that. I'm just saying like a line, even like three or four words with some type of visceral emotion when it comes to the the money negotiations because he's negotiating and it's supposed to be something that's either nerve-wracking or even he he might be super confident, but then we need something in that dialogue to add surprise and sort of, you know, throw him off his tracks. Otherwise, he's way too comfortable and He's expecting what's going to happen, and that is exactly what's happening. And that's not something you want. You want to defy expectations. Also, we're missing story forward thoughts, right? Like someone just got fired. Is he considering starting a company of his own? Does he have a non-compete? Is there someone waiting for him at home, whether it's a best friend or a partner or I don't know, who's going to say, I told you so, or who's going to say, I don't know, like what? Like these are the thoughts that go through people's heads when they get fired. They don't, they're not just in the moment. They're not just in that room talking to the person via Zoom. They are also someplace else because that is what our mind allows us to do. So there is very little on that. There's nothing about Shane. Is he wondering what's going to happen to Shane? Is Shane in trouble? Like there is such, there's, there's, there's a scarcity of detail and that bothered me because it didn't seem authentic. When it comes to the scene with Shane, okay, so he he's saying that he doesn't have sex at work, right? Like, this is not who he is. This is something that's surprising for him. This has been established. However, from the second that Shane shows up in the beginning of the scene, he's already, like, expecting to have sex with him. Like, he's already thinking about Shane, about how hot he is, thinking about, like, office affairs in general. And, like, as I said before in, in the previous scene, he's expecting it. And so we're expecting it. And this is doubly problematic because we know what's going to happen, right? So I don't know. I think that you have to recalibrate your protagonist's expectation vis-a-vis -vis what actually happens to add that element of surprise. And also when it comes to the, the flashback, right? Because that's what the night before is. What is the point of seeing it if all we're seeing is what we already know? Like the point of going back has to be to reveal something that will make us story forward curious. And that is not happening here. So while I think this project is so much fun and I'm all for justice for erotica novels, I do think that you need to flesh out his interiority a little bit more because this is not a movie. This is a book. Can I just hop in there with a suggestion that I've just thought of now is that you could begin with him being surprised by being called into this office because he really thought he got away with what he did. No one saw. He's feeling 100% confident. And the HR person or whatever is like, I think you know what this is about. And he's like, no, I don't. And, and they could be like, really, you don't know what this is about. And then we flash back to what happened between the two of them and then we come back to when he's being fired because then the flashback gives us information we didn't know we have the element of surprise the reader surprised the main character surprised everyone surprised and we've got the tension Carly yeah yeah I, I agree with everything you guys are saying one of the things I'm thinking about is kind of the expectations of readers of this genre and what they're expecting and I think almost Michael, maybe you're trying to just make sure you're kind of hitting all of those notes to give a bit of a payoff, you know, to what readers are expecting. But I definitely agree with Cece. I mean, a way to elevate this beyond the genre, you know, there's many, not that you have to elevate it beyond the genre, but there's so many books like this that have broken out, right, that have huge mainstream success, and they are the ones that are going to be elevated. So I would, I would definitely take Cece's advice on that. The thing that really stood out to me was that, number one, just phenomenally written like really well written. It's witty. It's great. The opening line is very strong. This is very, very, very well written. 
But what stood out to me was actually, it it seemed over-polished to me because, and I think that's kind of what Cece was getting at, where (laughs) Cece's making faces at me like, what what, what am I going to say? I think that's what Cece was was getting at. And what what I see is that it it seems too polished because the the dialogue, it's almost like we expect what's coming. And I think what Cece's getting at is like, how how do we throw in some things that are unexpected? Because it's a little bit predictable at this point because yes, okay, he knows he's getting fired. The Zoom happens, you know, he gets fired. And and so I liked Cece's suggestions about like who's waiting for him at home. Because really, I mean, I, I'm trying to think if I've ever been fired. I don't think I've ever been fired. I mean, I've been I've been like, oh, my clients, but in terms of like a boss firing me. You're not in the moment, right? Like Cece said, you you are. Carly, if you I'm, have to think about it, it's never happened. If you have to think <laughs> about it, it's never happened. <laughs> but I can imagine that you're thinking about everything else, right? Like, nothing like you you as soon as the words you're fired come out of somebody's mouth i'm like i'm I'm sure that you don't think about anything else right you're thinking about the consequences of those words so the fact that he tries to fight with her kind of or argue or negotiate in the moment most people just like take their their check or their you know their severance package and, and walk away very few people want to fight in the moment and that says a lot about that character to me that he was so overly confident about his own ambitions and his own commitment to his work that he thinks that his work is going to overlook this <laughs> so that's why i just felt like over polished right this character was like overcreated, and i'm just i'm not seeing this character like live and breathe and, and be a real person enough even though it's written really well i mean clearly things are happening on the page so very well done but yeah take cc's advice i think that the whole over polished thing plays really well with the buffing and the waxing and so we need to we need to make a joke about it just saying our listeners can do that on their own with their own brain right okay so Cece will you read us the next query letter let's do this dear Cece Carly and Bianca first off congratulations on the massive success of your podcast I look forward to it every week listening in LA as soon as it's posted knowing hundreds thousands of other writers are similarly tuned in it feels nostalgic the way people gathered around their TV sets for NBC's Thursday night lineup back in the 90s. Following, please find my query. Dear Cece, because you represent upmarket women's fiction and we share quite a few favorite authors, Patchett, Rooney, Efron, Moriarty, and Sittenfeld, I hope you'll consider my 93,000 word novel, Title Redacted. Set in the male-dominated world of advertising in the 1970s, it's the coming-of-age story of Alex, an impressionable young woman who dreams of being a writer. Think Corolla Lovering's Tell Me Lies meets Mad Men, with tone and pacing that would make it fit comfortably on the shelf alongside Curtis Sittenfeld and Taylor Jenkin Reid. Alex believes her ears, shaped like the handle of a bone china teacup, might be her best feature. At 5'7", Jacob falls short of being her tall, dark, and handsome fantasy man. But desire has its own eyesight, and the pair falls deeply, profoundly in love. After months of long-distance yearning, Alex has agreed to leave everything she knows and loves behind in Southern California to live with Jacob in San Francisco. But finding their daily lives together more mundane than magical... Alex turns to work to fill her need for something ineffable. Energized by the fast-paced, glamorous environment of the advertising agency where she's a receptionist, Alex is thrilled by the personal and professional attention of a seductive, award-winning copywriter. 
trying for a promotion to copywriting to satisfy her desire for a creative outlet, Alex is increasingly torn between pleasing both her controlling boyfriend and her chauvinistic copywriting mentor. To succeed, Alex has to learn to please the most important person in her life, herself. A member of the WFWA, my writing has appeared in various publications including the LA Times, Sunday Magazine, Parents, The Daily Breeze, The Good Men Project, Purdue University's Literary Journal, and 805 Living Magazine, where I was a monthly contributor for four years. Title Redacted, inspired by my own experience in advertising, is my debut novel. When I'm not writing, I enjoy photography, trees, and daily walks to the beach with my husband. Thank you very much for your consideration. Sincerely, name and socials redacted. Awesome, Cece, thank you. So what was your take on that query letter? I want to say that I never considered that like people wait for Thursday to listen to us and it feels so nice of you to say and also kind of surreal and just really awesome. I never thought about it. Also, yes, these are some of my favorite authors and like when it comes to Efron, it's Delia forever. I like Nora too, but yeah, Delia comes first. I love, love, love the hook. I would definitely request pages based on this query letter. I watched Med Men for Peggy because Dawn was so boring. All the men in the show, by the way, except for Roger, were so boring. But Peggy was the best, and so was Joan. So lots of exciting things going on here. The plot paragraph, which is the thing I always try to dissect and unpack. So it's really good, right? It's working. I do think it needs more plot. There's a lot of setup and a lot of interiority, which means that I don't understand how the plot escalates, and ideally I should in a query letter. So, like, what are the sources of tension that, apart from her own interiority, apart from her own dilemma of, you know, being torn between the desire to satisfy her boyfriend and her controlling mentor, right? So, for example, in trying for a promotion, which we know happens, is there a rivalry? Two people, one spot. Is someone trying to sabotage her? Like, what exactly is happening in terms of the plot? Because I think that that would make it a bit more compelling of a query letter. That being said, full disclosure, I would 100% keep on reading and request pages because this is a hook that I am very, very interested in. So you did a great job. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, your take? Yeah, thank you so much for those lovely, lovely words. It's always heartwarming for us to read that. Thank you. The first paragraph, the Because You Represent paragraph, is literally a perfect paragraph. You know, I think really, really, really well done. The second one, the Alex Believes Her Ears paragraph, I didn't love that we started with physical description. I just felt like it was unnecessary and not really integral to the actual plot book. So I, I really honestly don't think we need that that paragraph at all. I would just cut that. And then the body paragraph, the after months of long distance yearning. I felt like this was more of a synopsis than a sales pitch. I don't know. For some reason, it just it felt a teeny bit flat to me. Like, I didn't really understand why she was with this guy. And the conflict with herself, you know, the last line to succeed, Alex has to learn. I think we're missing a word there. Alex has to learn to please the most important person in her life herself. Like We're missing a two there. But to me, like, then there's no external stakes because they're all internal stakes if, if that's what's going on here. So for women's fiction, I really personally, you know, really just try to look for those external devices. And I think that that's what's so interesting about this is because you set it up so well with 
what's set in the male dominated world of advertising. You know, it's the coming of age story. Like there could be so many external conflicts here, but at the end of the day, pulling it back to the internal to me just kind of like took the air out of the tires for myself and in my own taste, but it's, it's all set up so well. So I think maybe, I don't know if there's more that we can add to the query to kind of answer some of those questions that I have, or maybe I'm just imagining this is a different project and you can tell me I'm up to, out to lunch. <laughs> Sometimes I imagine there's a, a whole world inside a query that doesn't exist. And the author bio paragraph was great. So so yeah, there's so, so much that's working here. I would just love to know more about the external stakes. Wonderful, Carly. Thanks. Okay, Cece, will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? We have a prologue. It's not marked as a prologue, but it's very clearly one. It's summer 1977, Santa Monica. And there's there's a couple. It's our protagonist and her boyfriend kissing by a tree. And it's it's short, it's sweet, it's romantic, it's very well written. And yeah, and we can see that there's a lot of chemistry between them. It's really well done. Now we jump to chapter one. So it's 1978 in San Francisco. And it's late January. And the protagonist is watching the rain come down, thinking about, you know, how she moved to San Francisco because of her boyfriend, that she left her job at the bookstore. She left her friends. She left her family. She left her entire life behind to be with this guy. And she thought that they were really happy. But unfortunately, they haven't been very happy. So for example, if it hadn't been raining, they would be playing volleyball with people from his work. And that, you know, would lead to an argument, but not going is also leading to an argument. He's still asleep. She's awake. And she's thinking about how they're not happy. How about, you know, maybe she could wake him up and maybe they could make up and maybe she could apologize and tell him that she'll be more outgoing, that she'll quit smoking, that she'll be the girl that he thought he fell in love with. But she's struggling because she's... They're not doing well. And the whole reason why she's there is because of him. So that's essentially what happens. Amazing. And what was your take on them? Okay, I have two big picture notes. One, this doesn't feel like the 70s. I know there are references. This actually starts with references like historical, like very sharp specifics. But the feel of a historical novel goes way beyond mentioning, you know, who was president or, you know, what was on TV or anything like that. It's things like what was considered to be scandalous. It's things like what habits were taboo and weren't. And, you know, to elaborate on these two examples, she's living with a guy out of wedlock. I realize that she's probably a super modern woman, but she still mentions a family, right? And she still mentions her own mother's advice. And there is nothing about how this is scandalous. And even if her mom is super modern, there should still be a note about that. There should still be a note about, you know, how her mom was different from all the other moms. And her mom didn't mind that she was moving to be with this guy and not even getting married to him. And again, this is especially true because she does mention her mother and advice her mother gave her before moving. Another example is the fact that her boyfriend hates the fact that she smokes. Now, everyone and their mother smoked back then. I personally also hate smoking, so I I totally understand her boyfriend's complaints. But again, there's no reference of, you know, of course I'm dating the only guy who has problems smoking or none of my friends boyfriends complain about smoking. I don't know. Something that would that would ground this in the mentality of the 70s, not just external things, right? Like that is what makes a historical novel historical. It's also the character's mindset. So that's my first big picture note. My second one is I would start at a different place. Like having her, it's so explanation heavy right now. Like it's all about how she got here, you know, like what happened that led her to come to to this place and how she's unhappy and sad. It's so just introspective. I would love, I don't know, like what if this started, you know, on her first day at work 
And people were like actually asking her, why do you have this job? Not all women worked back then. Remember that, you know, if you're, if you're already with a guy, why are you, why are you at this job? Maybe her colleagues could ask her that. And then, you know, slowly, gradually through inner life and a mix of dialogue, we could learn that she got the job so that he would notice her. We could learn that she got the job so that he, so that her boyfriend would pay attention to her again because they used to be happy and they're not happy anymore. Or it could be something else. But I do think that, you know, having her be alone, watching the rain come down, thinking while it's incredibly well-written, like super well-written, great job. I don't think it's the most compelling place to start this. And I I really wanted a compelling, like snappy, like advertisement scene going on. Great, Cece. Carly, what's your take on that? Okay, so I'm going to start with the with the prologue here. I felt like there was a lot of really obscure references in the prologue and almost like a mixing of metaphors. We had like the Arthur Rackham illustration. I think that's kind of an obscure reference for the readership. I don't know that they would get that. And then you bring in like Merlin, boy who would be king. And then you bring in like a serial killer thought like and then you bring in something about Australia. Like I just felt like the chaos was just overwhelming me as the reader in terms of just really trying to understand the sense of place here because you're talking about Santa Monica, like Santa Monica such a vibe of all places not to kind of really convey that. I just felt like it was a missed opportunity. So you'll see some of my some of my notes there. And then we get to chapter one. So I, I would recommend checking out Emma Klein's The Girls. I know that it was a historical novel set in the 60s. And I know this is the 70s. But that does a really, really good job of like infusing that mid-century vibe and things like Cece was talking about, about, you know, living with somebody out of wedlock and, and all of those things that were thought of as, as more dramatic then. And I agree with Cece about the we at the top we have this the opening is basically it says late january and the rain is coming down in sheets what else is new harvey milk has been sworn in ted bundy's on the run humbert humphrey is dead from cancer and the weather girl reports you know rain for six days so instead of telling us all those things again infusing the material with that would be would just be so much more rich my real big picture note here is is jacob i just don't understand why she's with him you know what is likable about him why are they meant to be it's just asking a lot of the reader to kind of believe all of those things without seeing any of it on the page, which to me just says we're not starting in the right place. So there's so much here that has so much potential. It's just not kind of breathing to life the way I want it to. Great, Carly. Thank you. Alrighty. So Carly, do you want to read the next query letter? And I did hear from the author who said that it's their birthday tomorrow. So happy birthday, Shelley, for tomorrow. And now we'll go into that query letter. Dear Carly, I'm a longtime fan of the podcast, member of an incredible memoir critique group matched by Bianca and adored and identified with your recent long reads piece on honoring our creativity as mothers. I know you have an affinity for stories about motherhood and identity, and I think you'll love What Kind of Mother. Complete at 72,000 words, it's a non-traditional recovery memoir marrying the hypnotic push and pull of motherhood in Elena Ferrante's The Lost Daughter with the raw early sobriety ethos of Christy Coulter's Nothing Good Can Come from this. I am nine months sober and three months pregnant when I learned my seven-year-old daughter has a rare genetic disorder passed down by the mother. In the years since her birth, I've divorced and remarried along the way my drinking as a self-medication has escalated in a way that would alarm anyone who knew me before. But my new husband didn't know me before. Now I may have unknowingly passed the genetic disorder along to our unborn child. And what I want most, to run away from the chaos and find a bottle of wine to numb the pain, is the one thing I can't have. 
What kind of mother shines a light on high functioning addiction in the gray area of drinking and relationships while also speaking honestly about the brutality of motherhood in a way wine mom culture tells us we shouldn't, at least without blaming it on the Chardonnay? I'm a journalist turned freelance editor living with my family in Columbus, Ohio. Along with discussing sobriety stories on my podcast, Zero Proof Book Club, I'm a feedback editor for Typehouse Literary Magazine, and my personal essays have been published in Huffington Post, Motherwell, Beyond Words, and Daily Drunk Mag's Mall Rats Anthology. In former lives, I wrote a weekly column for a small town newspaper, ran my own local PR agency, and was a restaurant critic with a secret obsession for McDonald's breakfast sandwiches. Thank you so much for taking the time to consider my work. Sincerely, Shelley Mann Height. Wonderful, Carly. Okay, what was your take on this query letter? So starting at the top, obviously, thank you so much for for reading my long reads piece. I put a lot of heart and soul into that. You guys can read it. It was just up on Medium. I mean, you can find it on my Twitter page. I think I have it pinned. So thank you for reading that. So one of the comps here, we have The Lost Daughter. Nothing good can come from this. I think those I think those are pretty strong comps. I think there's probably another memoir comp, though, I think we can probably find. And then regards to the title, What Kind of Mother? I stumbled on this title a little bit because Ruman Alam has a book called That Kind of Mother. And it is a novel. I know this is a memoir. It just felt too close to me, to be honest with you. So and That Kind of Mother is a great book. Have it on my shelf. Love it. But yeah, this one, this one tripped me up a little bit by being a little bit too close. I love that this query gets right to the juicy parts here. You know, the nine months sober, three months pregnant bit, birth genetic disorder, passed down by the mother. I mean, we're just we're getting right to it. And I absolutely love that about this query. It's such an important topic. I know recently we had another kind of like wine mom type of book, and and that that author actually I think got an agent request from listening to the podcast. I'm pretty sure she was the one that that told us she had a request from somebody listening. So definitely a hot topic right now. Something that is on my mind. You know, I'm a I'm a mother of two young children, and I hear a lot about wine mom culture. So I think this is um, something that is definitely in the zeitgeist, and definitely people are are thinking about, especially in the pandemic and and the loneliness that mothers felt from this. So I really felt like this this is a zeitgeisty type of topic. Yeah, and for for a, a project like this to be successful, you know, a memoir in this space, I think there's two things that it depends on. That is the quality of the writing and whether you can find an agent that gets it, you know, that those are kind of the two pieces. So I think you're set up for a lot of success here. And I think the author bio paragraph is great. Wonderful, Kali. Cece? So this query letter is just excellent. I also thought about that kind of mother. I'm obsessed with Ruman's novels. I love all of them. I I think this is a perfect query letter. Like, brava. It's it's such an interesting journey. And, you know, the last line about being a restaurant critic with the secret obsession for McDonald's is just the best line ever. So, so yeah, you have a great query letter. Great job. Wonderful. Okay, Carly, will you give us an indication of what's in those opening pages? Mm. Okay, so we start off with our our character, our our author here, walking into the children's hospital with their child who is going to see their genetic counseling doctor who kind of has some information for them. We learn that they haven't seen the family for seven years. The child has gone from baby to first grader. So some time has passed from them coming back to see the the geneticist. And the ex-husband is there who is the father you know, of this girl, but not her current partner. And we learn that she has a baby in her belly, which we also know from the queer. And so we we find on these opening pages that the doctor is giving them the diagnosis for the child. And we learn that the genetic disorder is passed through the mother. And so her being pregnant also complicates things a little bit for them in that meeting because they, they kind of made a saying like, hmm. I thought you thought we told you to talk to us before you, you know, try again for another baby. And she didn't. So there's just a little bit of, you know, potential drama there. But I think we, we it's pretty much what we know to happen in the query letter is what's happening in these opening pages. 
Okay, Cece, your take on them? The writer managed to make me laugh, even though this is a very serious subject matter and written in a way that is, you know, at times quite heartbreaking. And I, that is such a skill, right? Like that, that is so impressive. You did such a good job with that. And I really, really like that. So truth be told, this doesn't need anything, in my opinion. It's, it's really polished. It's absolutely excellent. Except maybe knowing what the symptoms are that the daughter has, because there's like four or five references to her symptoms, but nothing about what they are, unless the withholding is intentional. So if the withholding is intentional, don't give us so many references because it does get aggravating to be like symptoms, 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 and not tell us what the symptoms are. If the withholding isn't intentional, then, you know, maybe as of the second reference, you can just add a little bit more detail so that we can get it. Don't add explanation, add sharp specifics, give us the visuals, give us the emotionality of the struggles that she faces in her life because of these symptoms. Since I'm reading with a critical eye, I do think that, you know, what if the revelation that it was passed down from the mother came at the very end of the five pages? Because right now the unfolding is, you know, we, we know it almost right from the start. So, you know, for the entire scene, she'd be focusing on her daughter because her daughter is in the room with her. And that's another question I had. I'm like, is it normal for the child to be in the room for this big conversation? Like, I don't know because it's, I've never been in that situation. I'm, I, I don't have, I don't have human children. I have Baba. So I don't, like, I don't know if that's normal, but I feel like it, I don't, again, it, maybe it's her parenting style. Maybe she wants her daughter to be there. So I would almost want there to be a shift and perhaps she could be thinking only about her daughter because there's going to be some information on her diagnosis. And then towards the end, this doctor who's annoying her, I really like that, could just, you know, sort of say, like almost in passing, almost carelessly, since he doesn't have great bedside manners, you know, that it is passed from the mother. And then that could be like this whole other shift since it just changes the stakes for what's happening. It's no longer about the daughter, which would be more than enough, right? Because it's a child. But it's also about her, her, the baby that she's carrying, which is just so emotional. And yeah, so that's that that would be the note that I would brainstorm with the author if this were like a client situation where I'd be like, hey, let's make this even more compelling. But please know that it's already super fantastic. Wonderful, Cece. Okay, Carly, what have you got to add to that? This is so complex with just like emotional depth of like, I can't even imagine what the situation would feel like, right? And that's this writer's job is to kind of put us in a situation. So I think what I'm grappling with with these sample pages is we always say with memoir, like it needs to read like a novel, it reads to read like a novel. And I almost feel like this reads too much like a novel because memoir is all about somebody's recollection of events, right? And it's your recreation of those recollection of the events, right? Put on paper into, into storytelling. So there's a lot of layers to that. And I, I almost feel like this writer, this is me making judgments, but I almost feel like this writer is hiding behind the dialogue. This writer is is hiding behind some of these novel writing tendencies. And I, I really feel like we're missing some interiority here of, of what exactly is she thinking in this moment? Why did she get pregnant again without talking to the geneticist? Like, I, I don't know. I have so many questions about the layers here. And I almost feel like we're hiding behind the dialogue. And again, it could just be these are five sample pages and it's, I'm only seeing the five pages. And I'm not getting obviously the rest of this, but I feel distant from this. And I really don't want to feel distant because I feel like this is so deep. You know, she's she's hiding behind things like this humor, feeling angry at this doctor, but she's not really confronting the fact that she is angry. She's only acknowledging the fact that she's angry, which makes it feel like a novel and that we're in the moment. But this is a memoir. And the whole point is that recollection and that introspection. 
introspection and that depth of time and meaning that we infuse on things after things have passed, especially dramatic and traumatic things. So I'm feeling distant from this and I and I don't want to. So so those are kind of those are my notes. I, I just feel like there's so much here and I just feel like I'm not getting everything on a visceral level the way that I want to. I really take my head off to memoirs because it's such a difficult line. If everything is memory and recollection, we're too far removed from the work. If it's too much in scene like a novel, then we don't get from it what we want from memoir. So really to the memoirists out there, I just really, really take my hat off to you because it's not easy work that you are doing. All right, that's it for today's segment. If you would like to submit, go to our website, The Shit About Writing, go to the Books with Hooks page and you can submit your work there. And remember, if you have submitted, you know, before February and your work wasn't selected and you've reworked it or if you've got something new, please resubmit to us. Right. Thanks, Carly and Cece. Let's go to today's guest. We're beyond excited to announce that the second The Shit No One Tells You About Writing Virtual Retreat will be run on September 24th and 25th from 9.30am to 5.30pm Eastern Time. We have 18 hours of jam-packed, amazing content lined up for you, featuring writers, coaches and editors at the top of their game. Now here are the 13 speakers we have lined up. Jesse Q. Satanto, who is the author of Dial A for Aunties, Jill Santopolo, who is an author and an editor, whose book was chosen for the Reese Witherspoon Book Club pick. We have Mark Tavani, who's vice president and executive editor at GP Putnam Sons. We have Lee Stein, who is an author, cultural critic, and book development expert. Alka Joshi, who has written The Henna Artist, which was also a Reese Witherspoon Book Club pick. We have Claire McIntosh, who's the multi-award winning author author of I Let You Go and numerous other books as well. We have Jane Green, who really needs no introduction. Matt Bell, who wrote How to Write and Rewrite a Novel in Three Drafts, who's also the author of the novel Appleseed. We have Elizabeth Gassman, who was an assistant editor for Little Brown and who is now an independent editor. We have Uzma Jaladadin, who also needs no introduction on this podcast. Laurie Grassi, who's a freelance book editor and former senior editor at Simon & Schuster Canada. Andrea Bartz, who's latest book, We Were Never Here, was also a Reese's Book Club pick, and Courtney Mom, who again needs no introduction on the podcast, but who wrote before and after the book deal. So bookings are now open. Please go to The Shit About Writing, look at the virtual retreat page, and claim your spot. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hi everyone, welcome to our show. Today's guest is a special one. She's a Mexican-American speculative fiction writer. After having lived in Mexico, Scotland, Egypt and Turkey, among other places, she has settled for now in New York City, where she works on her PhD dissertation in medieval Islamic literature and writes fiction inspired by her research and heritage. It's my pleasure to welcome Isabel Cañas. Isabel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bianca. Um, that bio is slightly out of date. I actually just finished my PhD. I defended my PhD dissertation the day before the Hacienda hit shelves. So, oh my goodness! So it's it's actually welcome, welcoming Dr. Kanyas. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bianca. It's a pleasure to be here. I tell you, you should have just told your publisher that you knew you were going to be able to defend your dissertation, so you could just have put it straight there on the book, so that as they went and went up. That would have been much smarter. That would have been really smart. The face I made when Bianca said that, you guys, I was like, oh, God. Because <laughs> if I had, I mean, everybody has imposter syndrome in academia. So 
you know, it's not so different from being a writer in some regards. Yeah, 100%. And and somehow for women academics and women writers the most seems to, to come up with imposter syndrome, but uh, we, we're doing the best we can on the show to get rid of, of all of that. Right, for our listeners, just a bit about the book that we're talking about today, The Hacienda. It's the gothic novel gets a stunning makeover in a new Latinx horror story about a haunted hacienda. The Hacienda is the haunting of Hill House meets Mexican gothic meets Rebecca in a feverish, frightening, mystical work. Now, for our listeners, you know how important those comps are in order to position your novel. So I just want to ask, Isabel, were these comps you came up with yourself or was this how your publisher positioned it? That is a fantastic question and one of the reasons I love listening to your podcast because we really get into the nitty gritty of how publishing works and how we write under its heavy gaze sometimes. When it came to writing this novel, I had read parts of Rebecca in school, but I hadn't read the whole novel. I had read The Haunting of Hill House. Mexican Gothic had not yet come out, but I think The Haunting of Hill House was the text, one of the texts that most informed this book. I love it. It's frightening. It is such a masterclass in the art of the first page and really nailing voice. So that was the comp that I was definitely coming into this book with. I knew it was going to be a Mexican take, if you will, on The Haunting of Hill House, or I played with it a little bit. And then my agent read the first uh, 40,000 words, roughly the first half of this novel. And she said, Isabel, you really need to, if you haven't read Rebecca, you should really read it because there's a lot of echoes here. And I thought, you know, okay, do what the woman says. She has never led me astray. Her name's Carly Sutherland. She's at KT Literary, and she is incredible. I love her. We have really great creative chemistry together. So I was like, okay, cool. So I read Rebecca. It was such an interesting experience. One, because it's an incredible novel. But two, because the unnamed Mrs. De Winter sparked such anger in me when I was reading the book. And I think those who have read it um, understand that this young woman is never given a first name. She marries a handsome widower who's older than her and about whom she doesn't know much. Again, you can see the echoes between Beatriz, the main character of the Hacienda, and the unnamed Mrs. De Winter. But in her experience, when she gets to Manderley, the great house that belongs to her husband, and she interacts with the staff who are all many, who are all very cold towards her. And she encounters uh, the metaphorical ghost of Rebecca, the first Mrs. De Winter. I found her reactions or sometimes lack thereof. They drove me batty. It was really a struggle to read them because I thought, you know, woman, fight back. Like I'm struggling not to shout so I don't ruin this recording. But I, it just sparked an incredible response in me that I knew I had to listen to. And so as I went back to my book and I rewrote the first half and really dove into the, writing the second half of the manuscript, I knew in a way that I was writing the Hacienda in conversation with Rebecca because I wanted to read a book in which, you know, Mrs. De Winter had a name and Mrs. De Winter fought back. You know, Mrs. De Winter clutched her fist and said, not tonight, you bitch, which is a line from the novel that gets quoted back at me sometimes. And I'm like, yep, yep, that is the energy that um, powers Beatriz through this novel. She's the daughter of a general and she's not going to go down without a fight. I wrote this book uh, with the understanding that I was writing into a certain tradition of Gothic novels. And I, when I first came up with the idea... I reached for familiar archetypes, uh, such as the young woman, her mysterious widow or husband, uh, suspicious uh, staff or other people in the household, 
and uh, a family member whom she could not trust, uh, who is Juana, her sister-in-law in this case. But I knew I wanted to imbue Beatriz with a different kind of spirit, more of a fighting spirit. And when it came to Mexican Gothic, I finished writing The Hacienda in May of 2020, and Mexican Gothic did not come out until later that summer, I think in maybe mid-June or so. And then it sold at Gangbusters, which I was very excited about. I love Silvia Moreno-Garcia. I love her work. Her short story work is what I tell everybody to read if they love her voice, because it really sings in the short form. But I was afraid. I was afraid to read it because I thought, what if our books are too similar? And I was really afraid that publishing would tokenize her, they, that publishers would say, oh, we already have our Mexican Gothic book. Oh, we already have our Mexican horror. We're not going to buy yours. I'm very, very happy that that turned out not to be the case, that publishers were very receptive um, to hearing another voice and hearing a book and l- reading a book that was, even though on paper it gets pitched as very similar to Mexican Gothic, it's quite different. Uh, Mexican Gothic takes a sci-fi spin, if you will, on the trope of the haunted house and the ingenue who comes there and the madness that imbues the house. And mine is uh, decidedly supernatural. Like these are some real, these are some real motherfucking ghosts in this house, you know? It's wonderful. And and just on something you've said here now, you know, you've said that the American Gothic tradition pulls much of its inspiration from English literature. And you've said when you're looking at a canon deeply rooted in English literature, there's a lot of overturning to be done. So can you tell us a bit about that, what you mean, and, and advice you might give for other writers who are aiming to do the same? So one thing that um, when I read English Gothic literature, and when I was in university. I took one semester of an English class. I went to the University of St. Andrews. So we were quite limited, actually, in our little extracurricular courses. Usually I stayed right on track for my major, which was Arabic and Middle Eastern studies. But I took one English literature class and we read some Gothic novels, some of which I love, like as problematic as it is. Wuthering Heights absolutely just rings in my bones when it comes to the drama and the undoomed love. But one thing that gets talked, that doesn't get talked about when we talk about Wuthering Heights is race. And this is something that I find that I struggled with when I, when I, and that I continue to struggle with when I read historical fiction, for example, or historical romance that is set in England in the 19th century is that we are not talking about race. We are not talking about empire. We are not talking about where money comes from. And so one thing I wanted to be explicit about when I wrote my own take on the Gothic was dissecting and deconstructing the foundation of a great house, the foundations of a great house like Hacienda San Isidro. It is built on the backs of the people who lived there before Spanish colonization. It is an embodiment of the racial and socioeconomic disparity that existed in the Spanish colonial period and in the period directly following and even up to the Mexican Revolution in the 20th century and the present. So that is the one thing that I, that is what I meant when I talked about approaching the Gothic and my problems with, maybe not my problems, but that deeply informed my approach to the Gothic. When it comes to giving writers advice for dissecting or taking on uh, genres like this that are deeply informed by um, maybe 19th century literature, or by modern takes on uh, 19th century settings or colonial settings or settings that are set in the heart of empire is really asking yourself where the money comes from. As a historian, that's something I've been trained to do is to follow the money. So when I looked at 
19th century Mexico in the wake of its 11-year war of uh, anti-colonial war against Spain, I asked myself, you know, this was a period of incredible economic stress. After 11 years of civil strife, people lost a lot. There was not enough money for guns even, so there were battles where men fought with sticks and rocks. So who would have money in this world? Who would have the large house? It's someone who would have had money long before this war even began, somebody who had strong connections to uh, the colonial enterprise, somebody who was of white European descent in the Americas. And one thing I discovered in my research specifically was that um, it was someone who produced alcohol. Um, I read a lot about pulque production in 19th century Mexico and 18th century Mexico. Pulque, for those of you who don't know, is kind of a sour beer made from the maguey or agave plant, which is the same plant that is used today to make mezcal or tequila. And uh, it was a very common, you know, how like beer used to be super common as like a drink, <laughs> I guess, in medieval England. So we, when we read our medieval, our fantasy novels that are based in, you know, pseudo medieval England. Everybody's got beer or whatever, historical fiction. People are drinking beer because it might have been safer than the water. Pulque is a rough historical counterpart. Um, it's, uh, I, I tried it when I was in Mexico in 2019 on my honeymoon. It's definitely acquired an acquired taste, I would say. <laughs> it's a bit weird. Uh, but the people who produced pulque was, was a drink that was had by many in 18th and 19th century Mexico. So I followed the money and it led me there and it led me to an hacienda, which is an institution that had so much to be unpacked. So my advice is to follow the money. Yeah. And there's even a line in the book where uh, I think she says, whether it's during wartime or peacetime, people are always drinking. And therefore, that's the one business that's going to, to thrive. Uh, so, so that's something that's noted there as well. For our listeners, Isabel, could you take us through the writing of this? Because it's my understanding that you wrote this in like a few months in kind of a fever dream in a tiny apartment in the, in the middle of COVID. Can you take us through that? Absolutely. This is Writing this book was an incredible experience. And when I got to the end of it, I was like, oh, wow, now I know how to write books. And reader, I was wrong. <laughs> so writing this book was an incredible experience that was both informed by a practice that I have worked and polished, worked on and polished for years and incredible circumstances that led me to throw things out the window and absolutely fly by the seat of my pants for certain parts of the book, which is not something I do. I'm superstitious about many things and never about my craft. I'm never superstitious about plotting. I'm very particular about it. So I came up with a rough idea for this book in the summer of 2019, late summer, like August, September. And I went on my honeymoon and I was in Mexico City with my husband. Um, and I lived in Mexico as a kid. I hadn't been back in many, many years, like I think almost 20 years. And so I was speaking Spanish every single day. Like the only person I spoke Spanish English to was basically like my husband and maybe a tour guide or two. So like parts of my brain that hadn't like been active for a long time. I think people who are bilingual or raised in households with heritage languages know that like when that stuff is firing, it is firing. And you're a little bit of a different person. You're a little more vulnerable to things. You're a little more awake and paying attention in ways you might otherwise not be. And I received a publishing rejection um, in the middle of that honeymoon while I was in Mexico City from my agent. We had had a young adult fantasy manuscript out on submission. It was my second to fail. It reached, it, I received a particularly heartbreaking rejection on a revise and resubmit. 
and I had a meltdown in public. <laughs> I was crying. I was sobbing in the lobby of the uh, National uh, Anthropological Museum. And my husband, uh, who is my number one cheerleader, first reader, story doctor, he's amazing, gave me a pep talk. And he said, you know what? Like, let's get back in the saddle. Let's try something new. And so I had this idea. And I thought, you know, my first two manuscripts that failed were fantasy. Let's have a whack at a pivot. Let's try something new. So I knew this was a horror novel. And I dove into it. I got the rejection in late October, and I started writing the novel for NaNoWriMo in 2019. And I wrote the first 40,000 words of it in NaNoWriMo. And it was very interesting because I have a very set process. I wake up early, not like the 5 a.m. writer's crew, but definitely I like to, my best days start before 8 a.m. or around 8, 8 o'clock. And I write in 40-minute sprints with 20-minute breaks. And I usually write between, depending on where I am in the book, whether I'm slower at the beginning or really I've really uh, hit my stride towards the end and I'm racing towards the conclusion. In 40 minutes, I write between 900 to sometimes 1,400 words. And I go through those sprints between four and six of those a day. And that leaves me with between four and 6,000 words a day. And that's how I tripped through this manuscript. And there were some days when I was writing the first part of the Hacienda that I wrote 10,000 words in a day because I was so taken by the spirit of this book. There were things in it that I write about and I've spoken about in interviews before that absolutely took me by surprise. Like, brief spoiler alert, although it is in the back cover copy, the character Padre Andres, who is a priest, practices witchcraft. And I did not know that when I started planning this book. It was something that absolutely seized me when I was writing a scene in which he first visits Hacienda San Isidro with the intent of helping Beatriz exercise the malevolent spirits that are plaguing her. I thought I really wanted a, a, a priest who, on whom Beatriz could trust uh, because having been raised in a very Catholic household and having been, become well acquainted with 19th century Mexican society, by researching this period, I was like, this is something that makes sense for the, a character. If she believes that something is truly haunting her home, where would she seek help? The church. And um, I remember writing the scene where this character, Padre Andres, walked into the room and kind of just watching in my mind's eye with my fingers flying across the keyboard as he crept, pulled a piece of charcoal from his pocket, crouched down, and began drawing things on the ground. And as I was typing, I heard a voice in my head as if somebody had spoken it or whispered it in my ear saying, he is a witch. And I lifted my hands off the keyboard and like stood up and started pacing the room because I was like, oh my God, I did not plan that. My ideas usually take a year or two to gestate. And I did not do that with the Hacienda. I started writing it within, um, honestly, a few weeks of really solidifying the idea. And it just seized me in ways I did not expect. It was an incredible experience. And I wrote, so I wrote the first half of it in November of 2019 and the latter half of it in April of 2020 in my 400 square foot Brooklyn studio apartment with my husband on calls all day long, 20 feet away from me. And I was in a place where I was incredibly anxious and I really wanted escapism and reading fantasy novels, which was my primary form of escapism for honestly my entire life uh, was no longer cutting it. And I think many people had that experience where to rip your, and even today, to rip your eyes away from the news takes an incredible amount of emotional effort and to keep yourself engaged and apart from the world in ways that are healthy uh, is something that is difficult. And when you find something that works, incredibly special. And for me, that has often been writing and it used to be writing fantasy and now I'm not so sure. <laughs> I think writing this this book really 
seized me and took hold of me and kept me in my own head and in a story at a time when I really needed it to. That's well, that's the power of reading something. And certainly that's the power of writing something, you know, is that escapism and the passage, you know, the passion you can pour into it and how it can take you away from such an awful period in, you know, for the whole world. And what you said there is something that I hope writers are listening to, especially the plotters out there. I know people love plotting, they love plotting tightly, but I do feel that if you plot too tightly, you are holding those reins too tightly and that will prevent these kind of epiphanies from happening because sometimes we need to just let go of the reins and let our characters tell us things and let us let our characters guide us in certain ways so that we can hear the voice that's like so-and-so is a witch that you never would have thought of. Whereas if you'd written it to the point of it being tightly, tightly plotted, you would not have allowed yourself that kind of epiphany and that wouldn't have found its way into the story. So I feel like for plotters and pantsers alike, there is a way to find a way to be most productive, most efficient when we're writing, but certainly to allow that creativity to have reign because everything from writing comes from that subconscious. It comes from the creative and we have got to you know, pay tribute to that and we've got to let it breathe as well. I just wanted to say that as a hardcore plotter, two years ago, I would have heard what Bianca just said and said, oh, poo poo, well, I'm different. No, <laughs> this is something that I think is really important to hear and to consider because our subconscious has, if you're a writer, then you have consumed story for your entire life and you have thought very seriously about story for at least many years. Um, whether you're a new writer or you're somebody who's been doing this for 10 years or even longer, your subconscious knows what it's doing. And I think a lot of the time we were talking about imposter syndrome. We often believe that we are not capable of really pulling something off. Those of us who are type A, very tight plotters, are afraid of failing. And letting go and letting your mad pony run is something that is very scary. But I really encourage you to be vulnerable and let yourself try it. I still use beat sheets. I think for my next book, I still plot. I still use Save the Cat Writes a Novel. I still use Story Genius by Lucid Cron to inform a lot of writing my character backstory. But one thing I think of, the, the one way I approach beat sheets now and plot different kinds of plotting structures is like goalposts through the dark. So I know like at this point, at 50% in the manuscript, I really need to have a big shift for the midpoint. But I'm a little more free about discovering in the act of writing what will lead up to that point. So it's kind of, I now, I'm not, would I call myself a planter? Oh my God. <laughs> How wild I, comma, the very type A plotter. I don't know. But I, I encourage you guys to, to give it a try and to trust yourself and trust your subconscious because you do know what you're doing. 100%. And it's a part vulnerability, but it's also a part empowerment. It's a part saying, I trust this inner voice enough to step up and provide what needs to be provided at the time it needs to. Um, and yes, certainly there is that vulnerability. So so it's definitely the two together. We're almost out of time, Isabel. I just want to ask, because you did touch on this, in terms of you said that there were two manuscripts beforehand that you wrote that you, you weren't able to publish, and then this was the one that did it. Can you just take us through your journey to publication in terms of landing your agent with whichever project it was, and I assume staying with them until until you finally published. Absolutely. So I um, was involved in the now, I believe, defunct uh, program Pitch Wars. 
I wrote a, man, a young adult fantasy manuscript and entered Pitch Wars in 2017. And um, through that process, revived, revised my manuscript, my query, my first pages, and eventually signed with an agent at the end of 2017, who was not directly involved in Pitch Wars. But at that point, I had started querying um, other agents. So I landed with her and I could not be happier. I've been with her ever since. So that was with my first manuscript. Uh, that failed to sell. Well, we got one offer, but it was like a kind of an offer where my agent, I'm really grateful that my agent is who she is because she was at an early point in her career where it probably would have behooved her to make a sale. Um, it probably would have moved her career along, but she had the insight to know that it would not have been a good career move for me. So I think the best agents are the ones who think of your career and their career as intrinsically linked. It is symbiotic. You must work together to really, and who will work with you for many years. I think those are the best agents. Um, so we turned that offer down. I wrote another manuscript. We took it out on submission. Rejections across the board. One R&R, rejections across the board. It was a really disheartening experience. So my first manuscript uh, that got me my agent, I wrote in 2017. We went on submission in 2018. It eh, kind of fizzled out. I wrote another manuscript in 2018, took that in submission in 2019, roundly rejection, rejected. So at the end of 2019, it was when I wrote the first bit of the Hacienda and then wrote the second bit of it in um, early 2020, revised it throughout the pandemic and took it out on submission in, I believe, late September of 2020 and got uh, ended up in an auction situation within like two weeks. It was a very different experience. And so I think the lesson to be learned there is... Um, one, your agent is very important. I think it is often said that it is better to have no agent than to have a bad agent. And as much as it hurts, especially in this querying climate, which I understand is horrific, it's true. I think a bad agent, I look back on some of the other agents who offered me representation and I'm like, I don't know if they would have made the same decision as Kari did when it came to that first offer in 2018. I don't know. And would my career be where it is today? Absolutely not. Um, so that's very important. And also writing the book of your heart. My second manuscript, the one that was just roundly rejected, was one that I wrote to market. I studied the market. I thought, what is my way in? Um, this kind of fantasy isn't working, so I'll write this kind of fantasy or that kind of fantasy. And I believe it was still a very heartfelt, genuine, good book, albeit flawed. We all grow as writers and can look back on our work and be like, eh, would have done this differently today. But I was writing to market. And I don't think that that al always results in a book that is not good or genuine or authentic or heartfelt. But for me, it, there's something in that book that doesn't sing the way the Hacienda does. The Hacienda was a book where I thought I've had all of this rejection. You know, let's have one whack at this new genre. Let's try something new without anybody watching, without any expectations. Having that freedom to fail is very important. And I think the reason why second books are so difficult for authors, because there's more pressure to not fail. And being in the midst of that, I'm like, oh, I feel that. I feel that in my bones. But yeah, I think um, write from the heart. Don't write to market. I won't say it never works, but it really doesn't often work. And your agent is a very important part of your career. That's my advice. I think we're going to end with that because that's the perfect, perfect place to end. Isabel, thank you so, so much. For our listeners, we will link to the book on our bookshop.org. If you buy through there, you support an indie bookstore, you support the podcast, and you support Isabel as well. We wish you much success with the second book, Isabel, and hope to have you back again. I would be thrilled if I could come back to chat and chat with you. It was such a joy. Thank you so much, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. 
In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. 
Don't forget there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.